Well, we come to the last part of a retreat. It's sad if we give way to a kind of juvenile excitement when the last day comes and start packing before it's necessary because what with the juvenile excitement of arriving, you can end up pretty well juvenile all the way through. <laughs> and I do think that we've had this lovely weekend, for me certainly, and we couldn't have had better weather, and the Carmelites are praying for you, I suppose, now at La Plata, and Mass is going on at Chapel Point, and we should feel while we're at Faulkner that uh, we are trying to pray too. We ought to think, therefore, about that description that Thomas More gave us of prayer, copied from Picus, Earl of Mirandola. I don't stir you to prayer in many words, but in the privy chamber of the mind, that this funny inward place, whether long or short, I adore God. It's so easy for me to say it, and it's taken me a lifetime to try to practice it, and many of us here have also tried to pray during our lives. So we ought to be sure on the last day of the retreat we think of this. Now today I want at least one talk to speak about ourselves as laymen as the problems we face which are not unlike what Thomas More faced. But I feel that before doing that I should say something about More's extraordinary ability in the books he wrote. And I have first actually one kind of commercial to read out, only I can't find it, where a gentleman wrote to me saying how much he liked the retreat, but that he liked to point out that the Mooney's paper in Washington is a very good paper. He didn't say we ought to read it, but he said it's very good. Not having read the paper at all, I don't have any views, and certainly wasn't trying to stop its sales. I was more interested in what the Mooney's hold, because I know that St. Thomas More wouldn't agree with them. So I certainly wasn't attempting to advertise any other paper, which is probably just as bad. So that's one chestnut out of the fire. <coughs> well, now I want to speak about Thomas More. You saw the film last night, and I'm sure you were very impressed. I think the, the shorter version of his trial, all on its own, is more striking even than the whole film. And it's worth thinking a little about The Man for All Seasons because what Mr. Ridley for one forgets is that first of all the author wasn't even as far as I know a Christian. He wanted to find a just man. Christ put aside for the moment he could only think of two, Socrates and more. And the Socrates was a bit <laughs> behind the times that's why he chose More as the man for all seasons. That title, as I say, was made by one of More's contemporaries. If a contemporary says of you, you're a man for all seasons, you must be pretty good. The next thing was, as you remember, the play was first on radio, if I remember rightly, and then it was on the stage with the common man sitting there and after every act asking you as the jury to judge whether you liked the more or not. And at the end of every act and every scene, the common man sat up and said, now those four more and those against, and everybody voted for more until the time when he fell out with the king, then they voted against him. That the real plot of the story was a marvelous one, how fickle people are 
and how today people change their views if you fall foul of authority. So in a way, the men for all seasons, when it was made into a play, they sadly dropped the common man, the head of the jury. And now it was made into a wonderful, wonderful film, but the moral was really not there, and Mr. Ridley should remember that, because Thomas More was put to death as a traitor and was for centuries unknown, and was restored to his rightful place, not by Catholics, but by a wonderful set of very honest Episcopalian historians. Professor Brewer, who translated all the state papers and published them, Dr. Gardner, Dr. Chambers, who was given a medal by the Pope for writing his life of Thomas More, E. Reynolds was a convert, that I don't want to make it out that Catholics also didn't praise him, but the, the, his restoration to the right place in history was done by the justice of the people who put him to death. History is like that. Eventually the truth comes out. In his book, Mr. Ridley says rather sadly that it's a wonderful film and it's made a, a heroic figure, but that figure is fictitious and not Thomas More. He wants to say that Thomas More wasn't heroic and that this indeed is really fiction. I wouldn't have faulted the film for that at all. I feel the mistake really is uh, that Schofield, who did the part so marvelously, wasn't the right man for doing it. Not because he wasn't a brilliant actor, but he, even on the film he's a bit Episcopalian. He's got that sort of, he walks fast and his eyes are clear, and you kind of feel he's been to Washington's Cathedral recently. Uh, so that Schofield was perfect. But the sad thing is that Moore wasn't like that. More indeed, the man who should have taken the part was Alec Guinness. Why? Because any of you who've ever watched Carrie's spy stories, especially Smiley's friends, will know exactly with Guinness you can watch for six hours and not know what the hell the story's about. <laughs> and yet you can't stop. I think Guinness is the perfect man. I don't know what he does. He holds your attention totally. You agree with him in everything, but you don't know whether he's on the Russian side or which side he's on. <laughs> I've always wished that Guinness had taken the part of Moore. And I want to show you why, because Moore had this most extraordinary thing. It was a gift which Ridley doesn't like at all, I may tell you. You never can tell whether he's serious or whether he's fooling, and you can never tell whether he means to say this happened or it didn't happen. He himself is the most honest and simple man. Every book of his you read, you vaguely know exactly what he stands for, and you certainly know why he died. But otherwise, you can't make out. For example, in one of his books, in the dialogue with Tyndall, one of the men he's discussing with has this lovely sentence, talking to Moore. Moore wrote the thing himself. But this chap says, you so often look sad when you are joking that men are not sure whether or not you are joking when you are speaking so earnestly. That's exactly what Guinness does. You can't make out quite exactly which side he's on. And Moore did this. It was part of him. Erasmus was the same. It was, I think, part of the new learning. They loved to make up 
they told true stories, but they wrote under non de plumes, and they wrote in a sort of mysterious way, so that you can't really be quite certain. And it is really a very thrilling to think that that happened. Now, you, you get that very well, of course, with Utopia. Utopia is really one of the biggest jokes in history. I'm so wonderful to think that a saint wrote it. A man who died for the faith is holding all sorts of things that would shock any sister before she was converted. There are all sorts of strange things that he says is right, and you don't know whether he liked it. The very last paragraph of Utopia says, well, I told Hyde today I wasn't quite sure whether I liked all he'd said. Well, he's written the thing. You never know what he's doing. As you know, when he wrote it, in those days printing was only just coming in. He'd never printed anything till then. And he wrote it in Latin and wasn't read in England until 20 or 30 years after his death. So he wasn't like Ridley writing a thing to get royalties. He was writing it to fill in the time while as a lawyer working for the wool trade. And it's the most wonderful thing because you don't know what he holds. The best lecture I ever heard on Moore, by far, and the one that has changed my whole image of him in a way, was given by their great Frenchman, Father Macador, Germain Macador, the Fre who speaks English perfectly. He might have come straight from the 18th century. It's so perfect. He's not at all like our English. But Father Macador in Australia at Melbourne University gave a lecture saying, Here I sit. I was baffled why he chose that title. And he told me before the lecture, so I had a, a line on it, that Luther, just that very year, had said, here I stand. Luther pinned his famous thesis to the door at Württemberg, and he said, here I stand. Moore never stood. He, everything he did, he was sitting down. It's, funnily enough, since then I've looked through history, you can pick out, even in your Congress, I think, and certainly in history of each country, people who sit and people who stand those who are making a protest and are determined to put a thing over, and those who chat like Guinness does. All Moore's things, he's seated. And you find that immediately in Utopia. It begins, he comes out of Mass at Antwerp, or wherever it is. They all sit down on a little bench, and they discuss. And Moore cuts himself into two or three halves, and therefore he's defending all three sides of the... Eventually, you've got to find what he really thinks. So, therefore, Utopia is extraordinary, as all the commentators rightly say. The one amazing thing is, you'd think it happened yesterday. It's so alive, and although it's not thrilling, and although, the, if I may say it, the Utopians are totally boring, the odd thing is uh, that they'd worked out a whole plan, and Moore seems to half agree with them and half not. Some of the things he copied in his own house, all the experts, and some say that he's copying Plato entirely because he was reared, as you know, on classics. So it may be Greek. Chambers maintains that in many ways it's monastic, that he's simply describing the charter house as he knew it, and he loved to have us all people in sitting on tables of 30 and the old people serving the young and give seeing, because by the old people serving the young, they can give more to the kids that behave. 
It's all terrible. And listen, the mother sits on this side in case the baby wants to relieve itself. She can get out quick. It's a sort of, you could almost come out from the Greater London Council or the whatever you call the equivalent um, in Washington. So there's other, of course, the one great man, a famous Russian, uh, made Thomas More into the first communist. And today he's the only saint in the world whose banner is carried in processions uh, around the Kremlin. Because, in fact, he has, in a way, produced so you don't quite know what to think. See, one of the big laughs is that, according to Lord Acton, who was a, a very good historian, I don't know if he's right, see, Moore allows divorce, just at the very time when Henry VIII was falling in love with Anne Boleyn. That's why Henry VIII said, oh, he's, he's the sort of chap I want in my government. He got them more into the government, and more then didn't. Turned out he didn't believe in divorce. No wonder Ridley's in a hell of a mess. So it is a most wonderful thing. I, I find that wonderful thing that Moore put in that you'd almost be a mortal sin in the old church before people marry. That how, uh, do you remember the uh, girl first goes and takes all her clothes off, surrounded, flanked by nuns, and then the husband-to-be comes and has a look at her body. Then after ten minutes, it's all timed, he goes back to his place and takes all his clothes off, and she, flanked by brothers, and, and she comes and looks at his body. But it all sounds very disgusting. You couldn't read that in a community. And yet Moore's last sentence is simply marvelous. Moore says, would you buy a horse without taking the saddle off? <laughs> you can imagine, you see, he, he really was a, Guinness is the only man who could have pulled that off. In one of his letters, he's got the most vulgar thing, I've never dared say it in chapel, and he wrote it to a most learned Don Dorpius of Louvain. And touchingly enough, poor Moore was mentions in it, that in his letter, that he was over in Belgium and he was looking for colleges for his children when they grew up. And so then he wrote to Dorpius and said, the Dorpius said Louvain was too good and everybody loves the things that they love and everybody loves their own jokes. And then he says, and for every man his own wind is sweet. <laughs> half, half of you were in prayer against Thomas More after that. But he's, anyway, he's the most extraordinary character. So utopia is really baffling. There are some parts of it are very good, but we can see exactly what he's getting at is that when he got back to England, he wanted to describe how bad the Christian world was. And there, when he describes the people that they, we hang for, and have the death penalty for, like you did too, that those people, we reared them into that. And, of course, the, the thing he's really attacking is what you'll find in his letter to his tutor about his children, the one very terrible thing is vainglory taking pride in things that are not worthwhile accepting that they're fashionable. When he writes to his own tutor, he begs him and says, my wife and all of us, with my children, I don't want them from early childhood to get all their desire on the opinion of men and being praised. You get very near to the truth when you read his letter to Gornel, because there you see what utopia is really meant to be. But it was an extraordinary book, and indeed, two or three very holy priests volunteered to go and convert these chaps. They founded a sort of conversion society for the utopians. They were all head-on. 
Now, see, more will have us on all the time, and so I do stress to you that that's one of the most interesting things about Utopia. It's gone on now for 400 years, and it's required reading in many places, in the schools, and it's rightly so, because, first of all, you can't really live unless you've got a dream world. And Moore was the first man who ever invented the word utopia. He added it to every language. He didn't know he was doing it. Later, Bacon and Dean Swift and all sorts of other people tried to write imaginary worlds. And the strange thing is that they all failed completely. There was nothing like utopia. And yet at the end of it all, as Chambers points out, now utopia means a dream world that can't be achieved, where in fact this utopia, actually, the terrible thing is it could be achieved, and then you'd have to the Kremlin. And yet the man who wrote it was praying with his forehead on the ground every morning. So first of all, that's the most moving book, really, and I put it, I had it here, not because I thought everybody ought to read it, but because it does give us a sense as how people don't really know with more, you don't know what he's doing. When he was about 18 and was going off to the Charter House to try and be a hermit, uh, he wrote a wonderful poem to Eliza, whom he had loved in his youth. And it's a beautiful story about him at 16 and she was 15 and how they fell in love in the playground, at school, in the yard, and they, and they were deeply in love. And then the other kids found out and told their parents and they were separated and weren't allowed to speak again. And they never met again for years, and now he'd met her again. And looking very well and healthy, whom he had loved in his youth. Nobody knows whether he ever had Eliza. In one way, he's almost sure he didn't. But he just managed to produce these wonderful things. He ought to have known Walt Disney. It was that sort of character. So you're, the first book I mentioned is Utopia. The second one, of course, is his dialogue uh, with Tyndall. There again, they sit down. <laughs> this idea that Moore was a bitter fanatic and that he wasn't, he was the most quiet man, and when he debated with Tyndall, it's a huge book, the bishops paid him 20,000 pounds in old age when he had come off chancellor with all, he had great pains in his chest, would he, the only man like Chesterton, a layman, to defend the church? Moore wouldn't touch the money at all, he said he would destroy it. But he gave his whole last life, part of life, he wrote about eight huge books defending the church, and one of them is the most wonderful division with Tyndall. Again, they're sitting at the table, and in a way he cuts himself in half, or he creates a very wonderful young undergraduate who is taken by Tyndall's views, and is most tolerable. And when they begin to discuss the clergy and the iniquities of the priests, as they often did in those days and now, Moore said, well, I've been married twice and you're going to marry next week. We're not going to be priests, so I think we're not the right people to discuss priests' affairs. And then later on he says a marvelous thing. He says that in all the other religions where priests couldn't marry, they were castrated. Then they couldn't have children like eunuchs. And Moore says it's the glory of the Catholic Church that you don't deprive the priest of the merit of trying to be pure. Which is quite a different view when you hear today about priests ought to be free to leave if they want. Well, in most early religions they weren't. And then he has a startling thing that he's, he has often said how bad priests were and the church was rotten in many ways then and now it's been rotten in every age, so has Parliament. 
But the opening is more says, but when there are fewer priests, then they'll be really good. And that's what he had in Utopia. He only had about 16, and, and four were serving with the army that never fought. But in fact, when you look at Maryland, and you see our little, these little shrines, there were only 16 priests in Maryland at the time of independence, and yet the faith survived all those years. Why? Because with few priests, A, the priests can give their mind entirely to their job, and the laity can do their job. I mustn't go on much longer, but I, the last book is the most remarkable. Well, there's one more beautiful thing that he writes uh, when he's debating with Tyndall. And I must read that out. I did last year, too. It's such a, a wonderful passage of talking about miracles. Why Ridley should say that Moore was a tight-lipped fanatic when you could write this, I don't know, or that his Lapparis family was a myth. Forsooth, I said I. Because we speak of a man raised from the dead to life, there was in the parish of St. Stephen's in Walbrook in London, where I dwelt before I came to Chelsea, a man and a woman who are both still living, and at that time they were both young. The elder of them was not past 24. It happened to them, as it does among young people, that they fell in love. And after many delays, for the maiden's mother was much against it, that's Mr. Dave Ellis. At last they came together and were married in St. Stephen's Church, which is still standing, which is not greatly famous for any miracles, though yearly on St. Stephen's Day it is somewhat sought unto and visited for folks' devotion. But now, to keep the story short, as the custom is with brides, as you know well, this young woman was brought to bed by honest women. And then after that went the bridegroom to bed, and everyone went their ways and left them twain there alone. And that same night, yet wait a moment, let me not lie, for in truth I am not sure of the time, but certainly as it appeared afterwards, it was probably on that same night or some other night soon afterwards, or perhaps a little before. Does the time matter, uh, said his opponent. Exactly, said I, it doesn't. And as for the matter, all the parish would testify that the girl was known to be very honest. But for the conclusion, the seed of these two turned in the woman's body first to blood and after that into the shape of a man-child. And then it came alive and she grew great with it and within a year she was delivered of a fair boy. And forsooth, it was not then, for I saw it myself, more than a foot long. And yet I am sure that he has now grown an inch taller than I am. And in good faith I have yet to meet a man who could claim for himself any other kind of beginning than this. And it seems to me as great a miracle as raising a man from the dead. It was the description of, of Meg's second child. But you see, when you read more, you don't know. This, this is certainly true because he gives the name of the church where he went to Mass and where they lived. So therefore you've got this wonderful gift of his of writing in that form. And the final one where we end the talk, and that is the Dialogue of Comfort. And this you, can't, you can buy, the Yale edition is to be had. This is the book he wrote when he was in the Tower of London.
And it's a most extraordinary book. Again, he's sitting in his cell. He doesn't say that. He puts his cell in Hungary. And the two people talking are an uncle and a nephew, both scared stiff because the Turks are now sweeping across Europe and have practically reached Vienna. And they could see persecution and death ahead. And the younger one has gone to the older one to get consolation. So he's telling a story all about Budapest. And half his stories, although they happened in London actually, he puts them all in Budapest. Well, they're chatting away, and they start off with the terrible state of the world, then they go on to what will happen when the Turks come, and how will they bear with pain. And then Moore does an extraordinary thing. Nearly all his whole life is told there. You'll find when he was a little boy, how they had a babysitter, old mother Maud, and how he remembers how she told them stories, and how they, one of the stories she told them was how a, I think it was a, a goat and a donkey went to confession to a fox. Extraordinary story, goes on for so long. He describes how when they were children in London, they, they played deaths and had coffins and walked through the street chanting a sort of bogus Latin. And one theme comes all through this book. When people are dying, you're like an old man who goes back and suddenly finds some cherries that you put away as a boy and hope to eat, and you've forgotten. And now they're all stones. He tells you the whole of his early childhood. He tells you all about his wife and his children, but you don't know he's doing that. It's only halfway through that you realize he tells you all about how afraid he is of dying, and of the passion of our Lord, and how he's going to, how he'll hang on, I don't know. And then what is so extraordinary is, that he wrote this really for his kids. When he was dead, all his papers were confiscated, and eventually this wonderful dialogue came to the, all his children and grandchildren, and they of course recognized that he was passing a message to them. But what was so wonderful was that Henry VIII was the great Turk, all these Turks that were advancing were Henry VIII. Henry VIII never twigged it, or he'd have chopped Moore's head off twice. <laughs> but the odd thing is, so Moore was sending a message to his children and grandchildren, and to us, to be brave and to hold on, and that is makes this extraordinary book, which is sort of about three stories in one. You go very slowly, it tells you all about people who are pusillanimous and try and run away from life as he'd done. It tells you all about scruples, and prayer, and right at the very end, it goes back to what he did all the way off the stage. His very last passage before the book ends, just before he died, he talks about how a girl, how a boy would die for a girl, even though by dying he would never see her again, just to show her that he loved her. He would take this risk in battle or wherever it was, and uh, he would do that simply because he wanted her to know how much he loved her. And he then sort of ends up, well, if the person you love you're only going to see when you are dead, well then, all the more reason one should be willing to die. And so his last lines of the, of the thing, which is so beautiful, I think, if I can find it, I, I put the marker in, but... But it won't matter. But it's a, very, it's a very touching sort of finale to the whole book when he ends up by saying that uh, that only that with God's face you can never see him in this life, and therefore only by dying 
will you see his blessed face for all eternity. And it's on that note he died. So even right up to the end when he had no paper in the tower and had to write with coal, he was still writing in that strange way. And it's only by reading his books one after the other, you begin to see his life of prayer and all that coming through from the very beginning with old Mother Maud telling stories in the nursery right down to the day and then the banners he put out about all the world's a stage and then finally where he comes to see that if you really love God then you ought to want to die so as to see him face to face. <laughs>